How much energy does it actually take to go from crude oil to petrol? Which is, of course, gasoline. America. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Hit me up on the website. Now, fascinating question here from a chap named Dave Gatter. And I get the feeling like he does want to frame the debate a certain way, as you will shortly see. But anyway, I'm going to try and deal with this in a rational, balanced, impartial way. And then you can give me a mark out of infinity. How did I go? Right at the end. Here's what Dave says. Ice lovers, presumably internal combustion engine lovers, are quick to point out that EVs require electricity from coal-fueled power stations. A very long time ago, I read that it takes six barrels of oil to produce one barrel of fuel. Could you enlighten us? How much energy is needed to produce a litre of fuel at the Bowser? Should we shut down our power stations and install 10 kVA diesel-powered generators at every household? Thanks, Dave Gatter. Now, I note that a whole bunch of vested interests pertain into this whole EV versus internal combustion engine debate. And I'm kind of agnostic on that. I think there's a case for EVs, certainly, you know, clean air for our cities, big tick there, because there's a lot of pollution from internal combustion engines impacting directly on human health across the developed world in big cities. There's no doubt about that. Jury's in and guilty as charged. In a country like Australia, we are tremendously dependent on this fragile supply chain of hydrocarbons, liquid hydrocarbons from overseas. We just are. We've got like whatever it is, two weeks strategic reserve or something. And after that, it's all over. And it doesn't mean you're just not going to be able to go for a drive in your car. If that were to occur because of some terrible global unrest, like a conflict that flows from, I don't know, a pandemic, if that happens, worst case scenario, then not only do you not drive your car, but how do the groceries get to the supermarket? How do ambulances pick up injured people? And a whole bunch of other things of that nature, you know, the grease literally for the wheels that keeps society going are liquid hydrocarbons. And that's a problem. We've got endless coal in this country. And I know that coal is a filthy fuel and it's got a bad reputation, deservedly so. But if push came to shove, we could produce electricity endlessly in Australia. So one of the core cases for EVs is energy security for the nation. That's quite important and not enough politicians spend nearly sufficient time thinking about this terribly important issue for all of us. And half of them wouldn't even know what energy security friggin' well was, which is a disgrace. But that's just me. Anywho, getting back onto it here, I'd also suggest on the other side of the ledger that if you believe that hydrocarbons are not the best thing that has ever happened to humanity, you're insane, okay? Because it hasn't been much fun to be a human being for the first 
200,000 years of human history. Not much fun at all. Hard to feed ourselves, backbreaking labour just to subsist, you know, hunting, gathering, whatever. It's all very hard work. And then there's all of that dying really, really young in your 20s and 30s, okay? And just hasn't been much fun to be homo sapiens. But now, look around. I mean, you're connected to the internet. You've got your feet up on the desk. The only reason you are not busting your ass in a field trying to hunt some animal for dinner tonight or turning the soil over to grow something and hoping like hell that there's not a drought, you know, because starvation just around the corner, the only reason that you are not in that position is hydrocarbons. Hydrocarbons basically give humanity this almost free, endless energy to do anything. And all of the technological developments, you know, the industrial revolution, advanced medicine, GPS, the space program, nuclear technology, nanotechnology, everything that you take for granted in your life, which transforms human existence from not just being incredible hardship to virtual luxury. I mean, even if you've got the world's worst shitbox parked in the driveway, you've got more mobility than an Egyptian pharaoh or a Roman emperor. Um, Living in the modern world absolutely rocks. It's so much better than in the olden days. So let us not demonise hydrocarbons because they've got us here to this point, okay? So that's why I'd suggest that there needs to be less of this shouting, you know, internal combustion engine lover and more... How do we work together to, pre- to preserve the future, okay? And how do we do it in a rational way so that we don't all go back to living in caves in one or two generations or something? It's kind of important to get this right. So with that as a backdrop, let's talk about this question from Dave, okay? How much energy does it actually take to produce the, the liquid fuels from the crude oil? A barrel of crude oil is like 159 litres. It's 40-something US gallons, I think. And about half of it turns into petrol, gasoline, America, okay? And about half of the remaining half turns into diesel, okay? And then you get jet fuel and all of the other stuff, naphthalene and bitumen and whatever, you know, mineral oils, kerosene, stuff like that, out of the remaining quarter, Okay, and interestingly enough, when you refine a barrel, you start with 159 litres and you get 160-something litres of products. It's a weird volumetric change called a refinery gain. Google can tell you more about that. The efficiency of a modern refinery, and they're not all the same, okay? It's like the bigger refineries are more efficient than the smaller ones, but essentially refineries are about 90% efficient. So... For every 10 litres of product, there's about one litre of efficiency loss, if you like, okay? In other words, it takes 11 litres of gasoline to produce 10 litres of gasoline and it takes, you know, 11 litres of, uh, you know, diesel to produce 10 litres of diesel at the Bowser. That's just how this works. If you think about it another way, it's like, 11 barrels of crude oil produces 10 barrels of refined products, okay? That's 
basically how refineries roll. But you've also got to get the crude oil out of the ground, which is a fairly efficient process. You've got to get the crude to the refinery and then you've got to ship it around the world and truck it from those shipping terminals to the filling station. And good luck estimating that. But I have done some research into the overall net energy balance of that and it's about another 10%. Because shipping around the world is remarkably efficient from an energy point of view, simply because you can move a vast quantity of product at once. And there is an economies of scale type efficiency benefit. The bigger the machine doing the job, the more efficient it is. And you can look at it exactly like this. The easiest way to move a shipping container, for example, from Sydney to Brisbane or something, is to put it on a truck and move it. The least efficient way to do it would be to get sufficient cars to put those products all in the boots of all of those cars. What would you need? A hundred cars or something? And then drive the hundred cars from Sydney to Brisbane. That's a bad way to do it. Maybe you could do it with 50 utes. Still a bad way to do it. One truck, very efficient. This is, of course, why they've moved from single trailer, semi-trailer type trucks to B-doubles, because B-doubles are a more efficient way of moving more cargo from A to B. Bigger machines, more efficient. Anyway, the, the short answer here is in total, there's about 20% loss, in other words, 80% efficiency from the well to the bowser. That's just how this rolls. And before you EV nuts out there, you evangelists who don't want to acknowledge the facts, get into that and go, 20% loss, that's outrageous. It's really not because inefficiency of processes is fundamental to all processes. You always lose something on the way through, thanks so much, second law of thermodynamics. Every time you do a process, this is essentially what the second law of thermodynamics says, every time you do a process, you lose some available energy, okay? So every time you turn coal into electricity, you've got to mine it, you have to transport it, you have to burn it, you have to pump it, you have to build the infrastructure to carry the electricity vast distances across the nation too. You've got to do all of that and amortise all of that and you lose energy every time you do these processes, right? If you want to make hydrogen, you're going to lose energy, when you do that, if you're going to catalytically crack or steam reform methane into hydrogen for transportation, you're much better off just burning the methane. I guess if you're going to make the upfront investment in photovoltaic whatever to electrolyze water into hydrogen, then yeah, that's a solution because the photovoltaic arrays will last for a long time. The energy cost of them can therefore be amortized and ultimately we can have a clean sort of sustainable fuel that will never run out because, you know, you put it in a fuel cell stack, it produces electrical energy and out the arse end of the fuel cell, you get water that is chemically clean enough to drink. It's pure water, in other words. And thus, you've got a cycle. You know, you start with water, you pump energy in, you get hydrogen, you put it in a fuel cell, it pumps energy out, water comes out the arse end, repeat the process without end. So that's a neat sort of concept. So 
every process is just going to have an efficiency cost going to it. It doesn't matter what the process is and it doesn't matter what the product is at the other end. It can be an electric car. It can be an internal combustion car. It can be this fuel or that fuel. It doesn't matter. And this is why I always say scientific literacy is so important because it's easy to stand on some soapbox and shout about filthy hydrocarbons and shout about EVs and shout about hydrogen and do all of this stuff. The reality is that we cannot simply consume our way to a sustainable future. We need the biggest brains working on the problem of keeping five, six, seven, eight billion humans alive, sustained, in comparative harmony into the future. And these vested interests sort of framing the debate, you know, mechanisms like saying, you internal combustion energy lover, as if that's like being, I don't know, a devil worshipper or something. That kind of thing doesn't help, right? You've got to have scientific literacy, perspective and bilateral best intentions if you want to debate how to go about making the future, the best future we can for our children.